Hey everyone, my name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? My guest today is Lodro Rinsler. Lodro is a meditation teacher and the author of seven books on the topic, including his latest book, Take Back Your Mind, Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times. In our conversation, we talk about the benefits of a Buddhist approach to thinking about anxiety and how various forms of meditation can help us with anxiety. Enjoy. Lodro Rinsler, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Nick. I really appreciate it. Yeah, first repeat guest. Kind of a big deal. <laughs> Can't get enough. <laughs> yeah, so let's let's just dive into some questions about um, about anxiety and how you think about anxiety, coming from a um, a human perspective because it's something we all experience, I think. But you've got you've got a an interesting perspective in that you come from a, a Buddhist background and, and really know a lot about that and, and think about that a lot, um, and then also from the background of being a meditation teacher. Um, and so I think that's a really cool take on this very common experience we all um, we all feel, maybe more so the last uh, nine months or, or 12 months or so with the pandemic. Um, so let's start with you, you in, in your book on the, on the topic of anxiety, you, you talk about this really important distinction between when we're in moments of anxiety, when we're really feeling those, those acute bursts of anxiety, how important it is to kind of shift from focusing our attention on our stories about what's going on or about the anxiety itself to focusing on the feeling of anxiety itself. Now, <laughs> at first blush, this seems uh, counterintuitive maybe. So why is this important, this distinction between our stories versus the feeling of anxiety itself and shifting our attention to the anxiety? It's a great question. Um... So the book itself, it's called Take Back Your Mind, Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times. And it's exactly what you just said, which is we're living in very anxious times. And one of the reasons I said, you know, why now, why this book is there just seems to be this situation where an inordinate amount of people are struggling with anxiety and no one's talking about it. It's like this, this monkey on our back that we're all carrying around and no one's acknowledging so, you know, all of the books I've tried to do over the years, they've all been based around this idea of like, well, we need to have a conversation about this thing. And my experience with anxiety personally, you know, as, as you said, you know, born and raised meditating. I started practicing meditation when I was six. I started teaching meditation 20 years ago now when I was 18. And there's still been this like low hum all the way up to full-blown anxiety times in my life you know times where there are more stressors let's say and then i had we could even say more opportunities to work with anxiety <laughs> and it's such a buddhist thing to say to be like well yeah i had so many opportunities to work with my mind but it's true and i think you know in the recent years having learned to work with it um and learned to work with the stressors of my life in a better way I realize that so many of us don't have these tools for working with their minds. And a big one, as you said, is to do exactly that, to unhook ourselves from the stories. And that's like, that's just, first of all, step one out of two, like just unhooking ourselves from stories is revolutionary for most people because what we're doing to go off on a, an analogy tangent, it's like 
we go up to a fire that's harming ourselves or harming others. And we're just saying, you know what I should do? I'm going to pour some fuel and I'll, I'll get my gasoline tank out, toss it on. And that's what happens. Like this fire gets bigger and bigger when we do that. And that's what happens when we water our uh, emotional content, particularly our fear, our anxiety, our stress with those stories. What if this happens? What if that happens? The brain is a problem-solving device. It tries to fix everything. It tries to solve for everything. And particularly, as you noted, during a pandemic, there's a lot we don't know. It's a lot of uncertainty. It's impossible for us to fix. It's impossible for us to know, here's when my kids go back to school. Here's when I go back to work. Here's when we just don't know. So the mind can go into overdrive trying to say, what if this? What if that? Well, if this scenario happens, then I can go down this rabbit hole. And the invitation in this book is to unhook ourselves from that long enough to come back to the point where we're just present. And that's a little bit like instead of adding fuel to the fire, we're just holding our hands to the warmth of that fire, just acknowledging it, feeling it for what it is. And what happens when we do that, when we don't add more? A fire burns out. It goes away. If we're not adding story after story to it, it does have a, a limited lifespan. So yes, when we drop the story, we could come into feeling the feeling in the body. We can come into the present moment and the breath. We can come into just starting to acknowledge some of the other things that are happening. It's a little bit like taking the blinders off. We have this giant veil over our eyes when we're anxious. We don't see anything. We don't connect with anyone. We could go drive to the grocery store, do our full shopping, come home, watch a show, and pay attention to none of it because we've been so lost in our own head. And here we're saying, I'm going to take off the blinders and start to come into a sense of larger appreciation, understanding of the world around me. And that actually helps. So there's any number of things that can happen. But I guess the two-step process I'm referring to, step one, we unhook the stories long enough to come into the present moment. Step two, how do we then want to move forward? How do we want to actually proceed into our life from a place of meaning? Much longer answer than <laughs> this reminds me of a um, an idea that I, I think I first heard from you, actually, of the what's called the second arrow problem. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's just, I feel like this this needs to be understood by way more people. It's such a good uh, metaphor. Uh, Happy to. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It's not a load for Rinsler metaphor. It's a Buddhist metaphor in general that, you know, I, I've always found so relevant, but it's it really gets to the heart of what we're talking about. So you're going through the forest and I don't know where an arrow comes and hits you in the arm. And what we ought to do when we experience the pain of life is to take out the arrow and tend to our own healing. What we do instead, more often than not, is we start to tell ourselves these stories. Who shot me? I bet it was Chuck. Chuck always has it out for me. Everyone has it out for me. This is just so typical. Everyone else gets nice things. I don't get any nice things. I'm going to die alone. Everyone else is married. Whatever our version <laughs> um, The rabbit hole, whatever our personal versions are. That those stories that keep us locked in pain, that's known as the second arrow. So the second arrow is the stories we put on ourselves. Another example, you are feeling a little overwhelmed and all of a sudden your boss emails you saying, hey, can you get this up to me by the end of the day? That's the first arrow. I've, oh my gosh, you know, how am I going to get it done? Like, I'm going to have to figure this out. Instead of saying, okay. Let me look at my calendar. Let me see what I can get down. Maybe I need to say, no, I can't. We start to just spiral. Oh my gosh, if I don't do this, I'm going to get fired. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? Second arrow. So we do this pretty frequently. And, you know, it's everything from, you know, it's a very dramatic example of actually getting shot with an arrow. But like, we don't tend to our own mind. We don't tend to 
uh, healing. I actually saw a beautiful verse the other day by a traditional Tibetan Buddhist teacher, uh, which was pointing at the fact that it's like, if we can't actually work with our own anger, then we're going to find enemies everywhere. And that's so accurate. It's like, if I'm not actually working to tame my own anger in my own mind, I get annoyed at that person. I'm getting annoyed at that person. It's like playing whack-a-mole when instead we can go and just unplug the game and all of a sudden there's no more moles. <laughs> so it's sort of like we will always have opportunities to get anxious. If work stuff somehow magically becomes easy for us, then it's family. Oh my gosh, my family isn't stressing me out anymore. It's my romantic relationship. My friend hasn't called me in three days. Like I know people who it's like they're constantly looking for places for anxiety. Uh, what if this? What if that? Um, instead of saying, well, maybe I treat the anxiety itself. Instead of treating the symptoms, I actually treat the disease. Yeah, it it's really the the title of your book is um, is pertinent. I think the, the idea of take back your mind. In, in my experience, because I'm a, I'm a therapist and I work primarily with anxiety, and so people come in a lot to see me. And the way, understandably, the the way they frame it coming in is, I want tools to control my anxiety. You know, I, I need coping skills to kind of like reduce my anxiety. And I think what, from our different perspectives, what you and I both see as a really critical distinction is you can't actually control the emotion itself, right? That anxiety is, it's its own thing. Like the arrow's in you, right? It's there. The, the, be, the best we can do most of the time is to first make this distinction between in, in my language, sort of the, the emotion of anxiety versus the mental activity of worrying or, or self-talk, negative self-talk, right? The set, and that's kind of the second arrow. So learning that we can, we want to control the feeling, but really the feeling will take care of itself if we can take control over those things that we actually do have some control over, which is our thinking, right? The stories we're telling ourselves in our own head, right? And that's, that's exactly it. Yeah. Here's a question for you, if you don't mind. Great. Yeah. How do you, when someone comes and begins working with you, how do you delineate for them the example of stress versus anxiety? Mm, that's great. This is a psychologist getting fights about this at, at conferences. <laughs> the kind of worry, anxiety, stress. The way I think about it that I think is helpful, and I, I think based on what I've, I've read from you and learned from you, I think we're on the same page pretty closely. Um, to me, stress is the, the physical reaction to a stressor. So, so, and this is another good distinction, I think. Something, a stressor happens in life, right? You, again, like your boss, like emails you late at night or something, like that's the stressor. So I think we, we all are kind of programmed, even biologically, to, to go into fight or flight mode when we encounter a stressor, right? So our muscles tense, pupils dilate, you know, we, all this stuff, right? So I think of stress as the physical reaction that comes along with when our brain perceives a potential threat. And it's, it's helpful, I think, to distinguish that physical reaction from both the emotional feeling of anxiety or fear and the mental sort of habits or patterns of self-talk, worry, storytelling, that sort of thing. So I, I don't know, how, does that jibe with how you think about things? Absolutely, 100%. And I think that's, that's exactly right. And you know, someone who's been teaching mindfulness and meditation for as long as I have, uh, I'm being nitpicky, but I do take a little offense when people are like, oh, this is a stress reduction thing, because it almost sounds like you don't have stressors anymore. Like if you meditate regularly, 
your taxes don't come due. <laughs> you know, like, you don't have to pay bills anymore. Um, it's not the case. But I do, if I'm, again, being nitpicky, like stress management makes sense to me because if those stressors come up, how do we manage working with them? And one of the things that I find helpful here is like knowing that the stressors will come, how much time do I spend locking myself in the second era, which is anxiety? Okay, yes, rent is coming due. How much time do I lose in my own head telling myself stories about what's going to happen? That's, that's like me locking myself in a state of anxiety. Um, it's that mental thing that you're just talking about. And I, I think it's really important that we start to notice like the landlord doesn't come to our door and say rent is due and I want you to be completely anxious the entire time until you pay it. <laughs> no one tells us to be anxious. No one demands this of us, yet we do it to ourselves. And the very Pollyanna-like thing that I'm about to say, I realize it is, what it is, is that there's a choice here. And the choice is actually, you know, you probably saw this in the book, it's my favorite thing to do with people. If I turn to you and I said, would you rather be happy or would you rather be stressed? What would you choose? Happy, of course. Right, 100% success rate on this question. So <laughs> the idea is like in that moment, we make a choice. The act of meditation itself is us making that choice repeatedly. Sometimes we sit down. This is one of like, you know, 12 forms of meditation that are offered in the book alongside sort of shorter tips and tricks for off the meditation seat. But what the most basic form is that of mindfulness of the breath. And what we're doing is we're being present with the body breathing. We notice when the mind drifts off entirely. We acknowledge it. We come back. Sometimes people are like, I'm so bad at this because I have so many thoughts. You're not bad at it. Everyone has thoughts. That's like, again, same thing with the anxiety thing that we, no one talks about. Like no one talks about how many times we all drift off in meditation come back. But it's every time that an anxious thought, for example, comes up and we say, not going to chase that, going to come back to the breath instead. That's us retraining, rewiring the brain to not have to chase after every anxious thought, to unhook ourselves from that stories, to come back to the present moment long enough to then rest, to relax into our, you know, innate peace. Is it fair to say that one of the real tangible benefits of meditation um, is that it trains us and, and, and increases our skill at addressing the first arrow rather than the second arrow, right? It allows us to you know, kind of take the arrow out and just let the body heal itself instead of getting distracted by all these sort of stories and what ifs and letting the arrow stay in there and, and fester and, and preventing the body from actually, not with the mind, um, from kind of healing itself. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I, it's actually very interesting these days because there's so much science that's come out around this simple practice of mindfulness. And it's saying, you know, quite literally, like the immune system is boosted. We have, you know, normalizes our sleep patterns. And then, of course, all of these other things. Like it makes you more creative, more focused, et cetera. I always think the, those lists are so interesting because it all sort of falls under that thing of like, you're not stressed out all the time. You're not holding yourself in an anxious state. So no, lo and behold, you sleep better. <laughs> you're a little more creative. Your blood pressure goes down. No kidding. Yeah. Right. Like you're not holding your body in that fight or flight response mode that you're talking about. Oh, the body can relax and heal itself. Like, yes, so there is something to it, both mentally and then also physically. Um, but I, I think this is the thing where it's like mindfulness meditation is not going to be for everyone. I know that at this stage I've written, you know, this is the seventh book and I'm like, okay, 
I'm going to kick the dead horse throughout, like you should probably try this mindfulness thing, but I'm also going to give you lots of other tools and tricks. So for example, when people are going about their day-to-day -day life, there's these two questions that I personally have always found very helpful. Um, when we notice that we're telling ourselves story after story after story. And the first question is, is this helpful? Hmm. More often than not, if I'm catching myself, well, they're going to say this, I should probably tell them that. Well, maybe they don't know this. If only they knew that, then they wouldn't feel this way. Is this helpful? No. I don't even know if I'll talk to this person. I'm making up an imaginary conversation with my head. Okay, I'll let it go. The other one is just, is this useful? Same sort of thing. But it gives us a little bit of leeway because maybe the first or second time of how we're, we're going to deal with the landlord, maybe that's useful. we got to plan what we're going to do. But after the 50th time, we say, no, this is no longer useful and that we can unhook ourselves. I love that. Okay, so I have a little theory. I want to see what you think about this. Why is this so helpful? Why is it so, or so hard? Sorry, why is it so hard to ask ourselves, is this way of thinking actually helpful? My, here's my best guess. I think we spend most of our lives through the, the one of two frames, which is either, is this true or not? Or is this good or not? Is it good or bad? So we look at things through this sort of, um, you know, scientific, scientific kind of um, true, false, or kind of moralistic, like right, wrong, which there's nothing wrong with that. Those are, those are two valuable lenses to look at things through. But it's almost like we kind of ignore this other lens, which is whether it's right or wrong or true or false, we can also ask like, hey, is this helpful? Because maybe something is potentially true or false, right? That doesn't mean, just because it's true, doesn't mean it's helpful to you right now. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right? And I think, I don't know. So I think we get so stuck in those true, false, right, wrong modes that we have a hard time slipping into the more pragmatic, helpful, unhelpful. Um, Absolutely. And all of what you just said, even there's this, I'm getting very geeky with you here, but there's this thing where in Buddhism, we talk about body, speech, and mind, and they're all related. For example, if I, you know, my activity, my body is sitting there watching, you know, Breaking Bad for hours on end before bed, it's very violent and gory, and then I go to bed, it affects my mind and I have bad dreams. Not surprising, but we know that. So our activity affects our mind. If we sit around being anxious all the time, lo and behold, it might affect our speech. Someone says, how are you doing? Well, here's what I'm worried about. Right? Maybe we, we know someone like that. How are you doing? Oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe my neighbors are doing this thing. And now I'm worried about this thing. And it just comes right out in the speech. So they're all sort of connected. And, you know, the way we treat the mind then starts to manifest in our speech and activity. The way that we treat our activity starts to manifest in our speech mind. All of it goes back and forth. Um, the reason I mention this is because even in the realm of speech, the Buddha gave us very specific teachings that are completely what you just said. I know you were talking about the mind but that can manifest as the speech or the speech can affect the mind. And I read about this in the book that in terms of working with our speech, so it's actually wise, realistic, helpful speech. He gave these parameters of like, okay, you can say something if what you are saying is true, <laughs> right? That we're not going to spread things that might be slanderous gossip that might, that we don't know to be true for our own fact. You know, it's just sort of out in the ether. Uh, if what we are going to say is kind and kind here is different than nice. It's not like, Oh, I want to be nice to everyone. It's the sense of kind actually has a sense of like, is this going to be of benefit to the other person? Is this going to benefit us in our relationship or whatever it might be? The third would be, is what I'm saying necessary, which is what you're pointing at there. 
um, the sense of does it need to be said? A lot of things we say do not actually, you know, we're just saying to fill space or we're saying because there's no comfortable silence or whatever, you know, like we just throw ourselves out there. And then is what I'm saying offered in the right time? And this, you know, used to be quite literal. In some traditions I mentioned would still say it's quite literal. Like, oh, if, you know, I want to talk to my wife about our weekend plans and she's shrugging on her coat and she's halfway out the door, that's not the time to do it, right? We just know. These days I would maybe even add to that and say, you know, like the right medium. So, you know, sometimes we send, you know, emails back and forth with some, with someone and we're just like not communicating well. And some finally someone says, let's hop on the phone together. That's the right medium, right? Like it's finding the right version of it. So that, I, I think that's also important to figure that. But yeah, if we work with our speech with that in mind, then it affects the mind, it affects the body, and then we're more relaxed because we actually feel like we're communicating effectively and we actually feel like there's connections being made. All of these things affect each other. Anyway, that's what came out of my mind. Yeah. Yeah. So one, one of the kind of through lines in what we've been talking about um, and in your book and just I think the way you think about the world <laughs> is the importance of meditation. Um, and we, we've talked before about kind of misconceptions about meditation. Um, but I'm, I, I, I'm really curious. I, I think a lot about this. In my mind, it's kind of a dilemma. And I, so I, I want to pick your brain about this a little bit. Um, I guess my, my, I'm going to give you my question and then kind of give a little context for it. But on net, I wonder if you think this kind of recent surge in popularity, kind of popular, popular culture popularity of mindfulness meditation over the last, I don't know, decade or two, whether on net, whether it's a good thing, because it, in my head, I go back and forth between, all right, on the one hand, I mean, I meditate regularly. I, I know a lot of people do. I've read the research, like obviously becoming more aware of our own mind and more skilled at sort of adjusting our, our awareness and attention is a good thing. It's got all these benefits, right? The, the laundry list of benefits is just, it's huge, right? On the other hand, I, I worry that the popularization of mindfulness meditation has led to some pretty subtle but fundamental misunderstandings of what it is and what it's uh, capable of, and that those maybe are kind of might be kind of hard to uproot. So, for instance, one I see a lot in my my practices: people come in and they say, "You know, I've got a lot of anxiety. I need some coping skills. Like, how about mindfulness? Like, let's do some mindfulness." And I. I, this idea of mindfulness as a coping strategy, a tool that you pull out um, to just make yourself feel less stressed. It's to me, it's a, it's actually a little bit opposed to the the spirit of mindfulness, which is not I make bad feelings go away. It's that I learn how to relate to them in a different. So so treating mindfulness as a tool, like even a weapon to kind of get rid of some feeling, that that strikes me as almost kind of dangerous to the to the actual spirit of mindfulness. And so I don't know, I, I just, I go back and forth on this. I, so I, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, this tension between, is it a good thing or not that we're, uh, that it's, it's getting so much of a spotlight these days? Great question. Yeah. And I appreciate that, that context you put it in too, around this isn't like, I'm going to make my bad stuff go away. Or I'm going to level up and become someone different. It's like I become more of who I am and who I am is okay. And that's sort of a big point in the book itself too, which is like, we're basically good, whole, complete as is, which might sound very counter to the way that we were raised. I think many of us in society have been raised from the point of view, you're not good enough. You need more. You need a better education. You need a better job. You need more space. You, if you're ever going to start a family, you need an actual house. You need like, And then we keep looking for more and more and more, never actually relaxing and being open to things as they are. Um, and that sense of like, oh, I'm not fulfilled until... 
as opposed to finding some sense of fulfillment within, like I'm actually okay as is, which is what we discover when we do mindfulness practice. That when we drop out of those stories, even for a moment, it's no longer Lodra Rinsler sitting here being like, you're basically good. You're basically whole, complete. You understand it for yourself. Oh, I'm okay in this moment. I'm just resting here. I'm actually relaxed and present. It's that simple. And once we have a glimpse of that, a breath, three breaths, oh, I bet I can go further. Five breaths. You know, like we can we can build from there once we have that relationship to ourselves. But to actually answer your question, you know, I vacillated wildly. You know, having grown up in a Buddhist household, uh, my parents were Tibetan Buddhist practitioners before I was even born. So I started meditating when I was six. I started doing weekend retreats when I was eleven, and you know, I learned actually to hide it from everyone because it was not considered trendy or cool back then. Right. Well, I like to joke that's not the only reason I was pushed into lockers growing up, but it didn't help. <laughs> it bit, right? There's a lot of misconceptions. You know, I think the Hollywood presentation of monks on the top of a mountain um, being the only people out there that would ever meditate, you know, that's sort of, so in some sense, uh, <laughs> the future versions of, people like myself, young kids meditating, but I don't want them to get beat up. Um, I think it's a good thing. But I think we've also gone to an extreme where some of the things that are out there around what's being offered with mindfulness, it's gained diluted and it's no longer offered within context. So, you know, today actually is the day that I've kicked off the, I run an annual program every year. It's five months long. It's a Buddhist immersion and then there's a smaller section for people who've been meditating for quite some time, but that's a mindfulness teacher training. So it's the sixth year that I'm doing the mind, a mindfulness teacher training. I used to do a different version of it before. So it's the third time I'm doing this one. And um, I, in my own belief system, I'm like, you can't just go out and say, one of the annoying things I find is like, oh, I did a weekend with this nice Buddhist teacher. That was an intro meditation weekend. Now I teach you, I'm going to teach you what they told me. Because we don't know, it's like, you know, on the one hand, what's the harm of saying, oh, it's take an uplifted and relaxed posture, notice the body breathing, when you get distracted, come back to the breath. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. And we need everything underneath the surface to actually be helpful to people, to actually meet people where they are, to actually understand our own blind spots, our own position, our own positionality, our own power, our own privilege, our own ways that we could knowingly or unknowingly cause harm the ways that we actually might even have uh, weird relationships with money, the ways that we might have um, like, like all of the inner work that we need to do as individuals to actually be able to offer a practice genuinely to people. And then of course, on top of that, the vast majority of that stuff underneath the surface uh, for that iceberg is where this actually came from. So all these people have to sit there with me as I talk them through story of the Buddha, the four noble truths that he taught, the eightfold path, how under one of the eightfold path is the four foundations of mindfulness, how one of the, you know, the reason that we talk about these particular postures is because it's taught in the first of the four foundations of mindfulness. Like there's actual context being taught. So even if I'm sitting here, you know, and I, you know, after we uh, wrap today, I go and I teach a live meditation class. I do this every, you know, six days a week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I'm just going to turn to those people and give very basic mindfulness instruction. But it's important that I actually know the context or where this comes from, the historical way it's been taught, 
the way it's been passed down. The fact that I received it from someone, many someones in this case, um, and that they actually worked with me so that I was able to and continue to look at my blind spots so that I can actually grow as a teacher and be of most help to others. Anyway, very long answer. But the point here is I'm all for mindfulness going mainstream. I think it's a very helpful tool. I think it has to be introduced by people who know what they're talking about. Otherwise, it can get very messy very quickly. Yeah, you know, it's one of the ways I think about this. Is, well, let me, I'll, I'll give you an example. So I had a client come into my practice, a, a new client come in the other, recently. Um, and he told me this was kind of his opening kind of speech about what he wanted to work on. And he's, he, he came in for anxiety. He's really anxious. Um and he told me his kind of self-diagnosis was the reason he's too anxious is because he's doing too much negative thinking and that he wants to get serious about mindfulness so that he can stop doing so much negative thinking and start doing more positive thinking. Now, let me, I, I had a very uh, sort of mixed reaction to this. So how, I'm just curious, how might you respond if someone came to you like as a meditation teacher and said, I'm super anxious and I'm just such a negative thinker. I just need to start doing mindfulness so I can be, think more positively. How, yeah. how would you kind of handle that? I'm curious. Yeah. Um, my genuine answer to this is that I always tend towards sort of an improv yes and approach with people. Mm, right. <laughs> like, yes, I totally hear that you want to work with your negative thinking. and That's awesome. And in this case, like it's a little bit deeper than that. Like it's actually... I, I do think that there's something here where we think like we need to get rid of some part of ourselves. And once we somehow like the image often comes to mind is like that of an ice cream scooper that we just sort of scoop out from our own mind, <laughs> the negative thoughts and the anxiety, and then we're good. Like, and fill we're, it in with more positive thoughts yeah. and then you're good. Yeah. Totally. So like, I think part of the education process I find myself on the front lines of a lot is to sort of break the bad news that, this is a long-term thing. It's something that we need to maintain in the same way that we would our fitness. We wouldn't expect, oh, I'm going to get super jacked. I'm going to you know, do 100 push-ups every single day or whatever, um, and then I'm done. <laughs> right? We have to maintain this. So we might similarly, over time, start to notice, oh, I catch myself when I'm out in the world with some of these negative thoughts. And because I've been training the mind in this direction, I don't give as much space to them. Or maybe even the volumes turn down a little bit. So I don't, I can sort of not get so attached to them. I, again, I'm going to keep using this term, unhook myself from them, come into the present moment that more quickly. And that just starts to naturally happen because I've been doing mindfulness meditation. Great. That's really important. And that's something that we can do. But then we have to keep going. And the more we go deep with mindfulness meditation, this is also why I'm like, ah, not so bad. You know, people like, Mick, mindfulness is a movement where it's like they're just commercializing the thing and, it's not going to actually help people outside of the traditional context. If someone's doing like actual meditation practice every single day, it's going to transform them. And the more that they're actually aware of not just the negative thoughts, but like the ways that they suffer, the way that they hold themselves in states of suffering, then they start to look around and they're like, Oh, my wife does this too. Oh, my friend is in pain. Like I actually, I know how hard it is when I get hooked by anxiety, they're hooked by anxiety. And our heart naturally starts to open to them. And that's where compassion is born. It's not, I'm up here, the evolved spiritual person. You're down there. I pity you. It's a sense of empathy, seeing eye to eye. Like, oh, I understand. Maybe the stories are very different about why you're anxious. But I understand how this operates because I've been working with myself. And I can be here with you to suffer with you. Compassion. 
So there's some sense of um, like mindfulness naturally leading to some of these open-hearted qualities. And there's a, I'd say, you know, in terms of this book, Take Back Your Mind, it's the sense of the first section is, how do I work with my own mind? And there's, you know, a bazillion tricks of the trade in there. But then it's also, when we shift towards thinking about others, it naturally starts to alleviate the anxiety. There's an old phrase that if you want to be miserable, you only think of yourself. If you want to be happy, you can think of others. And it's, it's a shift that we can do. So there's a whole section on this, the sense of like compassion practices and opening in that way as well. There's other sections as well, you know, stuff like taking these age old slogans from the Buddhist master Atisha and sort of applying them to our modern day life. And then the fourth section would be um, how do we then bring these teachings into specific activities? I, I, I always like getting into the nitty gritty. So when we're traveling and there's anxiety around that, how do we manage it? When there's anxiety, I used the example earlier of like money. Like, how do we manage that? Anxiety around our family situation. How do we manage that, etc. Yeah, but one of my favorite chapters from the book is uh, is entitled "Maybe Don't Vomit Your Anxiety on Others." <laughs> so, speaking of kind of anxiety in relationship with other people, I think there's a really interesting um, kind of layer down here of about this. How do you? I guess my question is, how do you think through this balance of becoming more aware of and even um, being willing and having the courage to, to express and confront your anxiety, but also not um, falling into this kind of unhelpful complaining about or sort of vomiting our anxiety onto other people. Like how do you, in your experience and work, like how do you think through that tension and help people work through that? It's very hard. You know, I think um, yeah, I work with a lot of meditation students one-on-one and they, like if I can vomit my anxiety into someone, it's going to be low drill, right? He's not going to catch, which is true. I don't. But it also is very clear when someone starts going like, well, you know, this could happen, that can happen. But over time, um, you know, it goes back to that body, speech, and mind thing that we were talking about before. If we even say, you know what? For one day, I'm going to just notice that tendency that I have to complain, and I'm not going to do it. One day. For some of us, that's actually a big stretch. For some of us, it might be a week. I go one week without actually complaining. We might notice how often we use our speech to sort of tend the mind towards negativity. And it can be very minor things. Oh, I can't believe that they keep emailing me this hour. That might arise in the mind, but do we always have to vocalize it? Do we always have to give life to it and sort of continue to perpetuate that? Now, of course, there's times when there are things that can feel necessary, they feel beneficial, maybe enough lifting for me and the person that I'm in conversation with or whatever. But like we do even like, like we can stop, start working with the speech or we can start working with the mind to notice that tendency of, um, again, this is what if thinking, like what if that happens? What if this happens? What if I say this to them? Is that going to change it? To just start to catch those thoughts and one thing that I offer in the book in a completely different chapter is when we notice that, maybe even in a moment of transition, we're in a waiting room, we're on a commute, we're uh, waiting in an elevator, that we just start to notice, what can I enjoy right now? It's another big question that shifts us out of that state of anxiety from, oh, yeah, you know, taking those blinders off and looking around. Well, there's some fresh flowers in this room. They're really lovely. What can I enjoy right now? Well, I'm basically healthy. You know, during a pandemic, that's a miracle. It can be something very simple. But I think shifting our attention away from the future thinking or even sometimes past thinking that really nag us 
And coming into the present moment long enough to appreciate it can be really revolutionary for people. Yeah. So w- what about the flip side of this? So that that's kind of our anxiety in a social context. Do you have any tips for how to deal effectively and helpfully when we're confronted with other people's anxiety? Because I think that's something that comes up. I mean, we've all got our own anxiety, but like, Lord knows, like we all end up encountering other people's anxiety. And that it can be kind of an intimidating thing of like, how, oh, what do I actually do with this, if anything? Yeah. Yeah, it's very hard. And I think, you know, going back to what I was saying a moment ago about compassion, it's like the more we're actually aware of our anxiety, the more we actually start to notice, oh, this person, they're way out there. Um, it's very funny. I uh, have an anxious family member <laughs> with a lot of time on their hands right now, uh, just because they're, you know, who a lot of people are in, are in quarantine. And the scenario that they can, you know, we were just having a normal conversation. They said, well, can I tell you what I'm really worried about? I said, sure. Because clearly they wanted to talk about it. There's no going back on this one. And I just, uh, you know, the scenario was that the neighbors seem to be shooting guns more frequently. And does that mean that they're proud boys? And if they're proud boys, are they going to come over and kill them? I mean, it really became very big very quickly. Um, and the answer here for me personally in this particular situation was just to hold a lot of space and to become gently inquisitive with them. And it sounds horrible, but the first question on my mind was, why would they kill you? <laughs> she goes, good question. Why would, I guess if they were going to, if all of the other things were for somehow possible and real, they don't even know she exists, <laughs> right? Like it's, anyway, it, so just again, inviting people into a sense of gentle inquisitiveness around their experience can be really, the same way that we turn to ourselves say, is this helpful? Is this useful? Um, what can I enjoy right now? Like these gentle questions can also be offered to other human beings. You know, and that was an extreme example. <laughs> I would think, I'm sorry. It's so bizarre. Um, you know, it is a sense of like, you know, how did we get here? Yeah. Sometimes when I'm working with people who have like work anxiety, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I feel like people know that I'm dropping the ball on this thing. What happens if they find out that you're dropping the ball on the thing? Well, then my next review is going to be really negative. What happens if your next review is really negative? So I'm getting really big with it. Well, then I get fired. If I get a couple bad reviews, what happens if you get fired? Then I never get another job. What happens if you never get a job? Then I'm living in a box on the street. It always goes to box on the street. Right. No matter if I'm dropping the ball this week, it becomes box on the street. Um, so within that, like it gets so big that they realize it's so not based in reality. Again, becoming gently inquisitive can move people into reality either because they realize how far they've strayed from it or there's just enough space for them to express themselves and get themselves there. I love that phrase of gentle inquisitiveness because one of the things I hear from my clients who are anxious a lot and complaining about people in their lives and how they handle their anxiety is that people are either um, dismissive of their anxiety or they're kind of like... um, combative or, or like inquisitional about it. Like, why do you feel that way? Why don't you think about this? Why don't you? So I, I love this middle ground of sort of gentle curiosity or gentle inquisitiveness. Like, I think that just strikes such a, such a good balance. And certainly as, as a therapist, something I try to kind of uh, approximate that sort of middle road of, of gentle curiosity. So we're, we're kind of winding down on time here. I've got a final question for you. At, at the end of your book, you talk, you say, you have this line, if you take nothing else away from this book, I hope it's that you are not your anxiety. 
so that people realize they don't over identify with their anxiety. And I, this is one of those like points of similarity, I think between, between the two of us and how we think about anxiety. But I, I would agree. I think it's arguably the most important problem, kind of deep problem with anxiety is over identifying with our anxiety, assuming that because we're feeling anxious, there's something wrong with us. So what's, in your experience, kind of what's what's the biggest obstacle there? Like, why do people have such a hard time um, kind of separating themselves from their anxiety? Yeah, it's a good question. And um, so it's fine to have one book quoted back at you because, yeah, I'll stand by. Uh, yeah, it's like we over-identify. I remember... Um, there's a story in the book that I have a meditation student who went to the doctor and the doctor said, you know, she said, I'm suffering from anxiety. And he goes, yeah, you will be anxious for the rest of your life. <laughs> what a horrible thing. Was, I think it was just a, such a speaking of yeah. speech, right? It's like, I imagine another way of saying it is like, there will always be stressors in your life, but that does not mean that you actually have to always be an anxious person. What's a huge distinction there. And I think too many of us, if I were sitting here and I was, you know, deeply anxious and that really was like, no, you don't get it, Lodro. I'm an anxious person and I can't do any of these things. I can't meditate. I can't be with my mind. It's too much. I get it. I get it. That's why, first of all, there's 10,000 other tips and tricks in the, in the book that are like, here's just like a slight intervention in your day that can help you take a gap from that anxiety. From that gap, we might be able to make different choices and become more skillful in our activities and work with our minds better. But this over-identification is a real problem. At some point, we have to let go of that identity marker of, I'm an anxious person. It doesn't serve us. It just even saying, okay, I'm someone who has feelings of anxiety. I have stressors in my life. These are really totally valid and realistic things to say. But that does not make an anxious person. It's a, you know, I, I think we need to let go of um, the identities that no longer serve us. And if that's an identity that no longer serves you, I'm an anxious person, then you have to let it go. And I'm hoping that this book will help. Yeah, and it strikes me that the, all these little small kind of tips and tricks, and um, e even if you meditate for two minutes and you can't do it any longer than that, well, that's, th there's, you know, a, a percent of a percent of your day where you're maybe you're not anxious, right? Even if it's for 10 seconds. And that um, to some extent disproves that idea that I am, I'm an anxious person. I'm always anxious. And the more you can kind of build up those little pieces of evidence that suggest, well, I get anxious pretty often, especially when the world is really stressful. Um, clearly I'm not always anxious. And so doing those things helps us see them and be aware of them and remember that, yeah, there are these times when I'm not, I'm not just an anxious person. I'm a lot more than, than my anxiety. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, Lodra, thank you so much. We're, we're running out of time here. I want to be um, careful of your time. Where can people go to learn more about you uh, and your work? Great question. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> the nice thing about having my name of Lodra Rinsler is that you get the domain. So I'm on you know, Not a my website, lodrarinsler.com. But then, of course, I'm on Instagram under that name and Facebook under that name and Twitter under that name. And uh, the book itself can be purchased through Ingram. It can be purchased through uh, Amazon. And I imagine other places will be coming very soon. And the I do want to note that uh, for this particular book, 
all of the proceeds that are coming from it are going to two different charities. They're being split between the uh, Feeding America organization, which is a collection of food banks, knowing that a lot of people are having trouble accessing food these days, and the Loveland Foundation, which is um, offering therapeutic support for black and brown women. And I, I've always been looking for like, how do I start to give back? And I thought this was just the perfect situation where someone would ideally be helped when buy the book, but when they buy the book, they're also helping other people. Someone else. Yeah. So hopefully it all comes together in that way and we can raise a lot of money for them. Well, thank you. Thank you for your work and thank you for uh, making the time to come on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.